Welcome to Dark Tube, TV's Wicked History. I'm Brian Hartigan. On October 21st, 2021, director Helena Hutchins was killed on the set of the Western film Rust. A prop gun held by Alec Baldwin was supposed to have been safe, but somehow it wasn't. That incident is still under investigation by authorities. However, in the press coverage of the shooting, two names were brought up in connection with such on-set Hollywood tragedies. The first was Brandon Lee, who died because a prop gun accidentally contained a bullet stuck in its chamber from a previous live-fire exercise. And the second was John Eric Hexham. But while Baldwin and Lee are recognizable names in Hollywood history, Baldwin being an Oscar-nominated actor, and Lee being the son of Kung Fu legend Bruce Lee, the same perhaps cannot be said for John Eric Hexham. His lack of recognizability, no doubt, the result of his brief career. At the time of his death, Hexham's resume contained exactly four entries. The 1982 sci-fi kid show Voyagers, a TV movie called The Making of a Male Model, the little scene feature film The Bear, and the 1984 action series Cover-Up. It was on the set of Cover-Up where Hexham met his untimely and preventable end. Also thanks to a prop handgun. So who was John Eric Hexham? And what led to his shocking, some say suspicious, death at the age of 27? The first season of Dark Tube Wicked History sets out to discover just that. So join me, Brian Hartigan, as we uncover a trail of fateful choices, unyielding obsessions, and controversial decisions that led to the gun being in Hexham's hand on October 12, 1984. As a television writer and former senior writer for TV Guide magazine, I have to say I'm not normally a fan of stories that start out, he was born on. To me, that's right up there with the Oxford English Dictionary defines its very any biography. But for this story, I've decided to make an exception, because Hexham's very early life had a huge impact on the man he would become. And in some ways, the environment in which he grew up eventually gave rise to the man who picked up that prop gun and pulled the trigger. But I'm getting ahead of myself. John Eric Hexham was born in Englewood, New Jersey to Greta and Thorleaf Hexham and brother Gunner on November 5, 1957. His name, John Eric, was a combination of his Norwegian grandfather's names. But during his childhood, he would choose to go by simply Jack. His parents divorced when Hexham was four, leaving Greta to raise two boys on her own. Thorleaf would never be a part of their lives, and Hexham was just fine with that. He did nothing to help us, Hexham would later say. Still, Greta was determined to give Jack and Gunner an all-American childhood. Working two jobs, sometimes three, as a waitress, secretary, and hotel maid, allowed Greta to move her sons to a safer, more middle-class neighborhood. Hexham would later say it was a nice house with a big mortgage, but Greta wanted Jack and Gunner to attend a good school, in this case Smith Elementary in nearby Tenafly, New Jersey. 
From an early age, Jack was athletic, active, and competitive. Whether it was piano lessons, the soccer team, swimming club, explorer scouts, or even once a local clown contest, Jack liked to get involved. But it was in the second grade while performing as Dopey in Snow White that Jack caught the acting bug. Always eager to foster her son's interests, Greta began taking her boys on the 40-minute bus ride to Manhattan, where she gave them enough money for a Broadway show. She would tell Jack and Gunner she was going to visit a friend, and then wait at a nearby coffee shop for the show to let out, not wanting to tell them she couldn't afford another ticket for herself. In the fall of 1972, Jack moved into Tenafly High School, about two miles down the road from the Hexham House on Elm Street. It was in high school where Jack found his true calling, getting attention. When he wasn't emceeing the school's concerts and talent shows or doing his school's morning announcements, Hexham was lobbying the staff to institute special spirit days like Tuxedo Day and Hero Day. Sporting glasses and a shaggy, mop-top haircut, Hexham even went out for school president, feigning his own kidnapping as a means to secure votes. And this engineered scandal was breathlessly chronicled in the school's paper, The Echo. And Hexham would go on to win the election. Hexham loved winning. Granted, it was very small potatoes, he told Gannett News Service in 1983, but it was still winning. Active in soccer and basketball and track and field, Hexham also found time to appear in the school's musical productions of The Pajama Game and Carousel. Later, when things on the football team didn't work out, he and a few of his buddies decided to try out for cheerleading. When the local paper got word of this novel, at the time, Gender Swap, they sent a reporter to cover the story. It seemed like fun, Hexham told the Hackensack record, adding that it instantly turned the three boys into, quote, sex symbols, unquote. Hexham also found time to join the Harriers' school band, playing piano, violin, and baritone vert horn. One high school highlight came when, as a freshman drum major, his band traveled to Pasadena to march in the 1973 Tournament of Roses parade. Hexham graduated with the Tenafly High class of 1976 and enrolled in Case Institute of Technology in Cleveland to study biomedical engineering. He had designs on becoming a doctor, but he found the courses boring. After transferring to Michigan State's James Madison College in 1977, Hexham picked up a keen interest in philosophy. I was young, he said later. I was going to discover God and all of that. Hexham settled into MSU with eyes on a career in law until one Saturday afternoon when he attended a Michigan State Spartans football home game. Watching the screaming fans pouring out their adoration for the players, Hexham got it into his head that he could somehow make the football team. And even though he'd failed to make his high school team, things were different now. During college, Hexham grew nearly four inches and started running and hitting the gym, until he packed on 40 pounds of muscles. And amazingly, Hexham ended up making the team as a walk-on wide receiver, though he never made it into a game. I really did think I was going to walk in there and be an All-American, he said. That's just the way I think. Around this time, Hexham started calling into local radio shows, just because he wanted to hear his voice on the air. If he wasn't going to be a football star, maybe he would be a DJ. As a teenager, Hexham's deep and rich contra-bass voice had landed him a part-time radio job back in New Jersey. And it wasn't long before he found himself on Detroit's WCIV-FM, jockeying the midnight to six shift under the name Yukon Jack. But Hexham refused to take the work seriously, 
preferring instead to goof around on the air. Hexum liked to goof off. He once faked a report about a traffic jam in the middle of the night. As he said later, I got fired about nine times. After working for a handful of stations, Hexum found he enjoyed performing and began to pester MSU's theater department for parts in the school's productions. Musical director Kay Hickey recalled first meeting Hexum in 1979 when he walked into her office to ask about singing lessons. She wanted to know what his goals were. I want to be a movie star, he told her. As Hickey told the Lansing State Journal in 1982, I heard that voice and looked at that face and decided if anyone could do it, he could. A role as King Charlemagne in the senior class production of Pippin was his one and only amateur acting role. One month after that performance and two days after graduation, Hexum and his girlfriend Debbie packed up and drove to New York City to see if he could make good on his goal of becoming a movie star. He wouldn't have to wait long. In New York, Jack adopted his given name, though he added a K on the end of Eric on the advice of a casting agent, and he set about getting into show business. He took classes with famed acting coach Uta Hagen and took some of Sandy Meisner's legendary acting seminars. To make ends meet, he drove a cab while bartending at Arthur's Tavern, a jazz club in the West Village. He later joked that customers didn't have much of a choice when he was working. Rum and coke or a screwdriver, he told Interview Magazine. Take it or leave it. Luckily, the owner would let him sing and play piano when he wasn't behind the bar. He also used his newfound muscles as a bouncer at the Bond Disco in Times Square, a kind of off-Broadway version of Studio 54. And when he wasn't working, he was hustling. Surrounded by trade magazines, he claimed the payphone of a local deli as his own personal office. And he went into debt, printing thousands of resumes and headshots. He made the rounds, doing auditions and meeting casting agents and managers. By his estimation, he sent out 300 headshots every day. I just bugged people to death, he said. And the persistence paid off. In early summer 1981, Hexum landed a spot in the Rev Theater Summerstock Troupe in Auburn, New York. With roles as Johnny Brown in The Unsinkable Molly Brown and the Pirate King in Pirates of Penzance, he was finally able to get on stage and show his stuff. While he got good reviews for his stage work, not many movers and shakers made it upstate in search of new talent. Still, he did secure an agent out of the gig, and once his theater run ended, he returned to the city to make the rounds again. Out of 300 auditions, I got seven jobs, he said. A few of those came on a handful of network soap operas taping in New York. On ABC's One Life to Live, he stood in the background holding a bedpan. On NBC's Texas, he played a prison guard but his only direction was to open a door. And then on The Doctors, he played one of two delivery men unloading a fridge. The other delivery guy said, sign here, please, and I wanted to say, no, no, down here, but it didn't go over, Hexum later recalled. It was small potatoes, yes, but the producers of these shows noticed Hexum, whether viewers did or not. A couple of them offered him short-term contracts, but Hexum turned them down. He didn't want to be the seventh banana on a daytime soap, and as a result, his new agent dropped him. I think he was annoyed at what he thought was a pompous attitude, Hexum said later. But Hexum knew what he wanted, and daytime soaps weren't it. So he bided his time, picking up his mother's work ethic, and kept busy. 
He gave modeling a try, but only managed to score a couple of local newspaper ads and a couple of catalogs. And he paid the bills as a house cleaner. One day, as the story goes, or at least the story that he told everyone later, while cleaning a client's house, the client's friend spotted Hexum dusting the Venetian blinds. That was Bob Lamond, John Travolta's personal manager who had helped turn the former sweat hog into a superstar by getting him cast in Saturday Night Fever. Ironically, both Travolta and Hexum were born in Englewood, New Jersey. Perhaps Lamond took this as a sign, because he immediately signed on to represent the 22-year-old Hexum on the condition that he ditched the modeling gigs. Lamont told Hexum he had star quality, Travolta-level star quality, and the real action for that kind of talent was in Hollywood. Around that time, director Randall Kleiser, who had directed Travolta in Greece, was casting his latest film, Summer Lovers in Los Angeles. On Lamont's recommendation, Kleiser flew Hexum to the West Coast to audition. That part would end up going to Peter Gallagher, but Hexum made an impression on Kleiser. And then, in July of 1981, Jeff Daniels was looking to make a change. For the past three years, he had been playing the role of Jed Jenkins in the Broadway production of Fifth of July. Daniels had originated the part, that of the boyfriend of a Vietnam War vet, but he wanted to branch out and move on. The producers of Fifth of July liked Hexum for the part and offered it to him. And Hexum found he had a choice to make, head back to New York or stay in L.A. Lamont urged Hexum to turn down Broadway and throw his back into breaking into Hollywood. And Hexum took Lamont's advice. A lot of friends in New York thought I was crazy, he said later. As Lamont told Playgirl magazine in 1984, I think it was trust. Knowing John Eric, probably a little begrudging trust in my judgment, and a deeper trust in his own potential. Greta Hexum took out a second mortgage to fund her son's westward expansion. It wouldn't be long before he paid her back in full. Hexum's first L.A. apartment was a tiny 8x12 dump in the Venice Beach neighborhood of Oakwood. Known locally as Ghost Town, the area had something of a dangerous reputation. Hexum would later say he was even mugged near his home, not once, but twice. And Hexum shared the place with Jesus and Chewy, two illegal immigrants who helped get Hexum a job bussing tables at the old Venice Noodle Company. The pad cost $70 between them, and though Hexum slept on the mattress on the floor, he slept well, knowing he was in the game now. And he kept up his acting lessons, now studying with Jeff Corey and Joan Darling, in classes that feature a few up-and-comers, such as Sean Penn, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Meg Ryan. And he began to pal around with three other struggling actors, George Clooney, Tony Danza, and John Stamos. One of Hexum's first tryouts was for the lead role of Samson in the ABC TV movie Samson and Delilah. He was one of a handful of young, virile actors going up for the role, including Gregory Harrison, Harry Hamlin, and Barry Bostwick. But that part would go to Anthony Hamilton, another acting classmate from New York. Another audition saw him reading for the part of Crane McFadden in the CBS series Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. But that part would eventually go to Peter Horton. In Hollywood, the auditions were plentiful, the jobs were not. I went to 199 auditions from September through February and detected just about zero interest in my talents, Hexum said in 1982. I was getting pretty depressed. 
It wasn't until Bob Lamond convinced his old friend NBC casting executive Joel Thurm to see his client that things started to turn. Thurm made it a habit to fill NBC's screens with dozens of soon-to-be-famous stars. For instance, it was Thurm who would cast Courtney Cox in Misfits of Science after seeing her doe-eyed dancing in Bruce Springsteen's Dancing in the Dark video. Thurm instantly saw Hexum's appeal, likening it to a cross between Travolta's swagger and John Wayne's delivery. He had eyes of green and a voice of granite, one writer said. No matter what Hexum's acting was like, though, everyone talked about his eyes. His eyes have a clear, direct look, Thurm said in 1982, and he has a presence I haven't seen in an actor since I first met Travolta. I think he's destined for stardom. With Thurm's guidance, Hexum soon found himself in the mix for two very high-profile roles. The first was for NBC's hit Chips. Co-star Larry Wilcox had informed producers that after four years of playing the role of California Highway Patrol Officer John Baker, he was out. Wilcox's battles on set with co-star Eric Estrada had become legend in TV circles, but perhaps that's a scandal for another time. Suffice it to say, Chip's producers were looking to replace Wilcox with a new character named Bobby Nelson, a hot-dogging rookie cop. They saw hundreds of actors for the part, and though Hexum auditioned well, he expressed reluctance about having to ride a motorcycle 15 hours a day. So that part was given to Tom Riley. The second major role Hexum went up for also happened to be the result of some behind-the-camera beefs on another hit show, CBS's Dukes of Hazard. In 1981, after stars Tom Wolpat and John Schneider discovered they weren't getting any money from the show's massive merchandising deals, the two actors sued the production company Warner Brothers and walked away, thinking the show couldn't go on without them. Producers called their bluff, though. They had the writers create Bo and Luke's cousins, Coy and Vance Duke, to replace them behind the wheel of the General Lee. After all, the car was the star. Warner Brothers held open auditions for the new Dukes. Given his blonde, all-American look, Thurm immediately thought of Hexum for the role of Coy and pulled some strings for the audition. But Byron Cherry ended up getting that role. And that's because, though his audition went well, Lamond urged Hexum to say no to the Dukes. It seemed there was some buzz starting to swirl around Hexum. As they say in Hollywood, he had some heat on him now. And as such, Lamond believed Hexum could hold out for a lead role. It was a big gamble, but one that wouldn't take long to pay off. Around the same time Hexum was wandering all over L.A. looking for that elusive leading role, writer James C. Perriott was wandering all around Disneyland with his three-year-old daughter. Perriott marveled at the old-timey feel of the Pirates of the Caribbean ride and lamented that Hollywood didn't make swashbuckling adventures anymore. So he set out to change that. Blending the adventure of the ride with the whimsy of the surprise hit kids movie Time Bandits, Perriott wrote a pilot for a show about a swashbuckling time pirate, Phineas Bogg, who enlists the help of a modern-day kid to fix schisms on the space-time continuum. The result was the one-hour show Voyagers. NBC casting chief Bob Thurm thought Hexum would be perfect for the role of Bog, but Perriott wasn't so sure. He had written Bog as a bearded, middle-aged privateer, akin to Peter Ustinov's Blackbeard in the 1968 Disney movie Blackbeard's Ghost. 
Perriot saw Bog as a father figure to 12-year-old Jeffrey, his partner in time, but Thurm insisted that TV times were changing and Perriot had to change with them. In the late 1970s, thanks to Linda Carter on Wonder Woman, Vera Fawcett on Charlie's Angels, and Suzanne Summer on Three's Company, television underwent what NBC exec Paul Klein called its jiggle period. Good-looking ladies in short shorts and halter tops drew eyes to the small screen. Newsweek even picked up on this trend in 1978, slapping Summers on its cover with the headline Sex on TV. But by the early 80s, that trend was undergoing a gender swap. Thanks to Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones and Tom Selleck's Magnum P.I., it was the hunks who were now hip. As noted television critic Ed Bark wrote, TNA had given way to S&M, as in shoulders and muscles. Tom Shales of the Washington Post wrote that TV had gone from cheesecake to beefcake, and Bob Thurm thought Hexum was just the side of beef Voyagers needed. Of course, Hexum liked the idea of being the adult male lead on a network series. He just wasn't so keen on the sci-fi concept. When they first told me about the show, I thought it was dumb, Hexum admitted later. And it turned out that NBC executives weren't keen on Hexum either. They privately worried that his previous acting resume could be written on a matchbook cover with room to spare. He was beyond green, and his acting, they said, needed a lot of work. They had Hexum read seven times for the part of Bog, and yet they still weren't ready to make up their minds. So Hexum went back to doing odd jobs, including being a nightclub bouncer, a rug cleaner, and a call center receptionist. Meanwhile, he also increased his weekly quotient of acting lessons and added singing lessons to his busy schedule. But during that time, Thurm's prediction of the rise of the hunk started coming true. For the 1982-83 season, networks began greenlighting a slew of TV pilots starring masculine and muscled macho male leads. NBC had Matt Houston starring Lee Horsley. CBS had The Quest with Perry King. And NBC went with David Hasselhoff's Knight Rider from legendary producer Glenn A. Larson. NBC must have figured, eh, what was one more float in the himbo parade? So they had Hexum and child actor Mino Peluche screen test together in front of a panel of producers and executives. According to Peluche, their chemistry both on and off screen was instant and off the charts. It was like we've got this, he recalled to the YouTube channel Pop Culture Retro. It's indisputable. This is exactly what this is supposed to be. The network agreed and Perriot rewrote the character of Bog from that of a father figure to that of a big brother. And filming began on the pilot at the Indian Dunes Ranch in the spring of 1982. As a side note here, Indian Dunes is a popular filming location in Valencia, California. The infamous Twilight Zone helicopter crash occurred there two months after the Voyager's pilot was filmed. On the very first day of production, as Hexam and Peluche began filming a riverside scene with baby Moses in a basket, it became apparent even to Hexum that he was out of his depth. Aside from the day parts on some New York soaps, Voyagers marked his first appearance in front of a camera. His 12-year-old co-star, on the other hand, had been acting for four years. On the first day we were doing a scene and Mino was standing behind the camera, Hexum told TV writer Jerry Buck. I couldn't figure out why, and he said, Because we're doing your close-up, you idiot. Hexum also sheepishly admitted, I kind of lied my way into this. Still, Perriot maintained he'd cast the right man for the job. I think he got better as the show went on, 
Perriot told author Douglas Snoffauer in the book The Show Must Go On. Occasionally we had to go a couple of extra takes to get his performance up to par, but he was always anxious to do the best he could. Though Perriot uses the word anxious here to suggest earnestness, in reality Hexum constantly worried about being able to cut it as an actor in Hollywood. What I think about all the time is the quality of my work, he told Playgirl in his last major interview. I have a lot of anxiety about that. And yet, in less than a half a year of trying, he bucked the odds and had actually made it. Who cared if Perry had to lend him money so he could join the Screen Actors Guild? Now making $10,000 an episode, he ditched his Venice Beach flophouse for an only slightly bigger one in Van Nuys. Because despite his meteoric rise, Hexum was not ready to fully embrace his newfound celebrity and become a big spender. In fact, his default trait was always frugality, a trait he said that came from watching his mother scrimp and save as a single mom. As it turned out, Hexum may have been right about not popping that champagne. During the 1980s, the Federal Communications Commission mandated that Sunday nights at 7 p.m., network programming either had to be family-friendly or newsworthy. But it almost didn't matter what the FCC said. The Sunday at 7 time slot had been a wasteland for NBC and ABC over the years. CBS's show 60 Minutes, the granddaddy of all news magazines, had had a lock in that time slot for a decade. The Dan Rather-led program had consistently placed in the top 10. NBC's only strategy was counter-programming. In 1982, it was estimated that only 51% of American households had more than one television. Now that meant in half of American homes, if the parents were watching 60 Minutes, the kids were out of luck. But NBC gambled that times were changing as more families got more TV sets. With counter-programming, the grown-ups could watch the news and the kids could switch on the bedroom tube to watch something for them hopefully Voyagers. Now remember, this was a time when there was only three networks to choose from. So for the 1982-83 season, NBC slotted Voyagers in that time slot black hole. ABC countered with the Jack Palance-led Ripley's Believe It or Not, which took the news magazine format but covered weird and wild kid-friendly topics. On October 3, 1982, Voyagers premiered with a stage set for a ratings battle. The premiere episode had Bog and his sidekick Jeffrey trying to help the Wright brothers reinvent the airplane. The episode also introduced Hexum's kid-friendly catchphrase, Bat's Breath, something Perriot had picked up from his young daughter and hoped would join the parade of catchphrases popular in the early 80s. Television critics were split on the show. Some saw the appeal to kids, calling it reasonably pleasant in a modern-day Peter Pan, other, less child-minded critics called it sappy and a poor cookie-cutter imitation of Time Bandits. But a few were outspoken in their disgust for the show's liberties with historical events. If Sesame Street suddenly started teaching tots that the letter J was a vowel, complained Noel Holston, it would be no less guilty of educational malpractice than Voyagers. That's a surprising reaction considering the show had the backing of scholastic books. More surprisingly, perhaps, was how the critics also decried Voyager's violence. Voyagers has used every trick in the book to get their violence on the air, wrote Ron Allridge, who went on to lambaste NBC for its attempts to downplay that violence as, quote, 
action fantasy, which he called mere code words. Whether viewers agreed with these critical assessments or not is hard to know, because they didn't bother watching. For the week of its premiere, Voyagers came in dead last in the ratings, not just in the time slot, for the entire week. Out of 63 shows that aired that week, Voyagers ranked number 63. Meanwhile, Ripley's didn't fare much better coming in at 57, and 60 Minutes of course won the time slot, ranking in as the fourth most watched show of the week. NBC's president and wonder kid, Brendan Tartikoff, assured critics that everything was fine. He was committed to sticking with the show and was okay with its historical distortions. As long as the writers didn't have, quote, Cleopatra in ancient Greece, unquote. But that whole violence thing? That turned into kind of a problem. Anyone who has seen an episode of Voyagers can instantly see that the show is cuddly tame compared to today's kids' shows. But in the early 1980s, Dr. Thomas Radecki had a more discerning eye when it came to violence on TV. Radecki had created a group called the National Coalition on Television Violence to address the issue. Since its conception, membership had infected more than 3,000 concerned citizens. One of Radecki's early crusades was against the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons. This was all part of the so-called Satanic Panic of the early 1980s. Parents' fears of the game inciting suicidal tendencies in teens had spawned a 1981 novel by Rona Jaffe called Mazes and Monsters. That novel was then made into a 1982 CBS movie starring Tom Hanks. The week Voyagers premiered, Rudecki went on Phil Donahue to shout out against Hanks' M.O.W., claiming its dark themes would cause kids to kill themselves. A side note, in 2016, Rudecki was sentenced to prison for prescribing opioids in exchange for sex. This obviously forced him to step down from the outreach program he'd founded called Doctors and Lawyers for a Drug-Free Youth. But a year before Voyagers premiered, Radecki became a media darling when he began quantifying the violence on television, using a confusing and seemingly arbitrary set of guidelines. He would scrutinize an episode of a show and mark down all the acts of violence during any given episode. The result was the show's violent score, as it were. But just what constituted a so-called act of violence? Any, quote, intentional and hostile use of physical force on one person to another person, unquote. A playful pie in the face wouldn't count, Radecki said at the time, but an angry pie in the face would count. Then the group would ascribe a convoluted and subjective point system based on their tally. An attempted murder would earn a show five points. Punch in the face, three points. An angry push, one point. And once they had the total points of an episode, they divided that number by three for some reason. To give you an idea about how Radecki saw television at this time, earlier in that year, the group put out a press release naming the most violent primetime series of the 1981-82 season. Now, it wasn't Magnum P.I., wasn't Chips, it wasn't even the Dukes of Hazard. The most violent show of the 81-82 season, according to Radecki's group, was called Police Squad. It was ABC's slapstick sitcom starring Leslie Nielsen as bumbling detective Frank Drebin. Now, Police Squad, from the makers of the film Airplane, 
was the series that spawned the Naked Gun movies. So when this group tallied up Voyager's acts of violence number, they counted 37 in the span of one episode. Anything over 10 acts per episode is excessive, Verdecki said. We've never had a series that ranked a level of 37 acts. When questioned about Voyager's so-called violence problem, NBC CEO Grant Tinker said that he wouldn't apologize for Voyager's or any other NBC show. Yet he privately admitted that he wasn't, quote, entirely satisfied with Voyager's. Appearing on talk shows in late 82, Hexum addressed this violence controversy. He called the group's findings absurd and, quote, total baloney, unquote. It's comic book violence, he said. I have never killed, never stabbed anyone, and the most I ever punch people is three times. Though ever the salesman, Hexum liked to admit that the controversy was great publicity, though it's not clear if he understood that nobody was watching the show. Because facing the violence problem, Voyagers also had a ratings problem, and Tartikoff juggled around the schedule to see if a time slot change might help viewers find Voyagers. For its ninth episode, NBC moved Voyagers to Friday nights for a one-time tryout against the Dukes of Hazard. Ever since Bo and Luke had left Uncle Jesse's farm to race NASCAR, longtime fans had been staying away from the show in droves. The season before, Dukes ranked as the seventh most watched show of the year, but so far this season, with Coy and Vance, Dukes had dropped down to number 33. Tartikoff smelled blood in the water and sent out Hexum to drum up publicity for the show's new time slot. They say no one is going to watch us against Dukes of Hazard, Hexum told one reporter, but I'm going to try. Friday, December 3rd, 1982, 8 p.m. While the Dukes put up a snooze fest about a pool tournament and a black-painted General Lee, Voyagers countered with a jam-packed history lesson in which Bog and Jeffrey hopscotched through time, helping Einstein, Clara Barton, and Marco Polo. But the scheduling strategy was still a bust. The Dukes clocked in at number 24 for the week, while Voyagers limped in at 66. And three weeks later, Will Patton Schneider resolved their issues with Warner Brothers and returned to the show. But this one-time ratings disaster helped Hexham see that the writing was on the wall. NBC had initially only ordered 11 episodes of Voyagers, and because Hexham had learned how to read the overnight ratings, he knew he shouldn't get his hopes up of an extension for the rest of the year. So he did what he always did. He went to work, and he started hustling again. He kept up his acting lessons, while also throwing ballet and singing into the mix. This is not a game, he told one reporter. It's both a business and a craft. You have to be careful to spend your time properly. If you're a good actor, and you don't develop your talent, it's all for naught but his obsessive drive came at a cost. Around this time, his college girlfriend Debbie had grown tired of Hexen choosing his work over her. He who travels fastest travels alone, he said, but it isn't fun being that way. I know I'm incredibly selfish. Maybe I could have taken her with me some of the time. Maybe I could have just stayed at home. Instead, Hexum agreed to appear on any and every talk show that would have him including Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin. He even did a guest spot on a bizarre Peter Marshall game show called Fantasy, alongside Eve Plum from The Brady Munch. And finally, Hexum pumped $50,000, that's five Voyager's paychecks, into self-promotion. This included the release of a hunky, bare-chested poster of himself a la Farrah Fawcett. Hexum himself took the poster to five different print companies before securing a sale. Incredibly! 
That poster was an instant hit selling upwards of a 100,000 copies. It may sound naive, but I really didn't intend for that poster to get in that wide a circulation, he said later. Hexum was also surprised when, in early 83, NBC ordered nine more episodes of Voyagers despite the ratings. The reason? Well, thanks to a lawsuit, the juggernaut of 60 Minutes was taking on water. A few years earlier, the show, and its anchor Dan Rather, were named in a slander lawsuit brought about by Dr. Carl Galloway. He had been the subject of a 1979 investigation, which accused him of writing false medical reports to defraud insurance companies. So, Galloway sued Rather and CBS for $13.5 million, and by early 83, that case had made it to California's Supreme Court. Now, because of this highly publicized trial, Tartikoff suspected that the blue might be off the 60 Minutes rose for discerning viewers. If those viewers lost faith in CBS News, maybe they would switch over to Voyagers? With a second chance at life, producers went all in for the show's back nine. From January through May, episodes had Bog and Jeffrey at Pearl Harbor on the Titanic at the launch of Apollo 11 and chasing Jack the Ripper. It was practically a history's greatest hits album. Following some focus groups, NBC also discovered that the show's fans were primarily women aged 18 to 30, so the writers threw in more romantic stories as well. But it didn't matter. By the end of the season, Voyager still ranked 95th out of 99 shows that had aired since September. Hexum thought Voyager's fate was sealed, but NBC wasn't so sure. In May 1983, word was spreading that Voyager's journey was likely coming to an end, even though NBC had yet to make a final decision. Sheila Collins, a librarian at the University of Pittsburgh, made headlines when she launched a campaign to save the show. After all, it worked for Star Trek. There are a lot of things in the show that suggest one person can influence history, she said, and I think that's a good message for young people. She urged fans of the show to write to NBC. But Grant Tinker's office received only about a hundred letters, mostly from the Pittsburgh area during the first week of May. Also working against a renewal was the June 3rd court decision that voted 10-2 in favor of CBS and Dan Rather in the 60-minute slander suit. The scandal had done nothing to affect the show's ratings. Of course, another factor in Voyager's fate was money. The 1982-83 season had been a miserable year for NBC's one-hour shows. And with the solid prospects of cheers and family ties, internally there was this desire to put more money into cheaper sitcoms. Only St. Elsewhere survived Tartikoff's acts that spring, even though it had only slightly beat Voyagers in the ratings. After a brief flirtation with the idea of putting the show on Saturday mornings, but deeming it too expensive, NBC officially canceled Voyagers after one season. During the next season, they would try out their own news magazine, Monitor, in place of Voyagers against 60 Minutes, and, of course, Monitor came in dead last for the year. We had five wonderful episodes, five bad ones, and the rest fell in the middle, he told Starlog magazine, but 60 Minutes killed us. As some kind of consolation, NBC offered Hexum a short-term development deal, but they urged him to keep up with his acting lessons. And Hexum agreed. I worry about not being a great actor, he told a reporter from Michigan State. I'd hate to die young and never have made the grapes of wrath.
As for his grueling work ethic, he was practical, saying, Life goes by so fast, I just don't want to miss out on anything. For the next 16 months of his life, Exum worked tirelessly to make sure he wouldn't miss a thing, and he wouldn't have to wait long for the role that would eventually make him a bona fide TV star. On the next episode of Dark Tube, TV's Wicked History, John Eric Hexum has a breakthrough, with a little help from TV's biggest star. But his success comes at a heavy price, one which he'll desperately try to pay off in the months leading up to his death. Thank you for listening to Dark Tube. The show is written, edited, and narrated by me, Brian Hartigan. Music provided by Carl Casey at White Bat Audio and Aries Beats. You can find their music on YouTube and Spotify. If you like this show, please spread the word. Subscribing to this channel is always appreciated, as is sharing us on social media or leaving a review or rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at tube underscore dark, on Instagram at darktubetvhistory, that's one word, or Facebook at darktubetvhistory. Our YouTube channel will be launching soon, featuring short-form video versions of our stories. You can check that out and subscribe on YouTube at DarkTube. If you have suggestions for a story to cover, comments on our episodes, or if you have the inside scoop on a wicked part of television's past, drop me an email at darktubetvhistory at gmail.com. For a complete list of sources used in this episode, be sure to check out our show notes. And if you like what we're doing here and would like to contribute, please visit our Patreon account and consider signing up as a patron. That's at patreon.com slash darktubetvhistory. Members will be eligible to receive transcripts of our sources on demand, episodes and scripts, and a few other goodies. So please consider donating at patreon slash darktubetvhistory. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the second of our four-part investigation into John Eric Hexham's tragic death. And that episode will be entitled Stardom. So until then, stay tuned and don't touch that dial for more of the scandalous past of our favorite pastime. <laughs>